So welcome to the Rector's Bible Study. I am not the rector. I am Ken Brannan. I am the vice rector, but I have rector in my title, so we're going to go with that. Chris is in Virginia. Um, he actually is on the board of Virginia Theological Seminary. Great seminary. I went there. He went there. Some others went there. Um, really, it's, a, it's an amazing school, and it's wonderful that he's on the board and is able to keep his hand at continuing theological education for a new generation of students. Um, so Chris asked me if I would cover this in his absence. He will be back with you. Um, and, you know, always remember that there may be someone in your Bible study who is coming for the first time. So there's a lot of catch up to do. And I just, so I've let you know who I am and I'm following this outline. Some of you may have gotten it. If not, just raise your hand and Kristen will bring it around. This is gonna guide our work today. We have someone here who needs one. Raise it up high so she can see you. She's in the back. Oh, okay. We need about I would maybe 10 or 15 more. Share in the meantime. Okay, we are doing a study of Genesis, which is an ambitious task. Because if you think, it really covers all of prehistory and then the very early history of Israel. So this is quite a swath, um, quite a breadth of, of what Genesis is all about. Um, today we're looking at chapter 26 and specifically verses 6 to 33. And I, I had to laugh when Chris gave that to me because there's such a delicious story right before 26 and such a delicious story right after 26. And this poor little chapter... <laughs> doesn't seem like there's much there, but we are going to love on Isaac. We are going to appreciate Isaac, even though he gets very little airtime in Genesis. So that's what we're going to do. We're looking at 26. Um, and I really want you to see this as a fulcrum. So we have the story of prehistory and Abraham that has happened. Now we have this little moment with Isaac to figure out who is this patriarch, who we always say, you know, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, who is this Isaac? And now after this, you'll go into the good 10 or 11 chapters about Jacob, whose name is Israel. Very important, Jacob's name is Israel. So the whole reality of the people of Israel is wrapped up in Jacob's name. So Abraham, big, Jacob, big, and Isaac, just right. The Lord be with you. Let us pray. Holy God, you are our God and we are your people. We thank you that as Christians, we have been grafted into the tree of promise. We acknowledge the promise of our forebears, the promise to those yet to come, and we claim that promise through Jesus Christ, asking you to reveal to us how we might respond faithfully to your ongoing work of redemption in the world. In Christ's name we pray, amen. amen. So I would appreciate, um, just if you'll bring me up to speed a little bit, and, and I don't think you're gonna have a microphone, I don't see a handheld one, so if you respond to this, if you'll just use your big voice, maybe, it's okay, just consider standing and, and responding to this. What have, this is the closest you're gonna get to a test. What have you learned up to this point? about God, or promise, or faithfulness, or blessing. And I want you to try to go a level down. Let the elevator go down a little bit. For you personally, what is something you have learned that maybe you didn't know before, and that you think might impact how you move forward? Could I just hear a few responses on that? What have you learned about any of those topics, or even something else that I haven't listed there? I'll repeat it when I hear it with my faith to not give up. 
And you can make it personal about your life or something about Genesis that you didn't know or any of these characters. So this is a reminder, so-called heroes of the Bible is what we're learning about, and they are not perfect by any stretch of the imagination. Yes, sir. God has a purpose, and we can trust that that will be revealed. Anything else for you that you've learned by being here? Maybe something you didn't expect to learn. Do I hear a mumbling? (laughs) What's that? She says, you think we didn't learn very much. I think you learned plenty, but you're in front of a lot of people, and sometimes it's hard to speak. So let me ask you a different question. There are many who come to me and say, why do we spend any time in the Old Testament, in Hebrew Scripture, why don't we just focus on the New Testament? If someone in your coffee group, if someone said, let's just ignore Hebrew Scripture and stick with the New Testament, what would you say to them? Why would you tell them that this work, this study is critical for being a person of faith as a follower of Christ? Bill Power says you cannot understand the New Testament unless you understand the Old Testament. So certainly as a foundation. This, this is Jesus' Bible. It's hard to understand what he's talking about unless you understand his Bible. What else? The one or two generations before me, it's like the Old Testament. Say more. <laughs> one or two generations before me is like the Old Testament, so therefore what? So the laws contained in Hebrew scripture are trustworthy for some healthy living. Anyone else? What would you say to someone who says we really shouldn't waste our time with Hebrew scripture? Right. I've come not to abolish the law and the prophets, but to fulfill them. Friends, I suggest to you that from the very beginning of Genesis, God is making promises not only to Israel, but to the whole creation. And if we don't understand those early promises and how consistent they are, so that when Jesus comes, we see it as a fulfillment of these promises, um, we will just be woefully unprepared for the life of faith, one. Two, I will share something that I believe that I shared with a group this week and I'll share with you. We sometimes spend time trying to figure out who God is going to bless and who God is not gonna bless. We talk about that sometimes and who is saved, who is not saved, who's going to hell, who's going to heaven, right? These kinds of questions. The people of Israel are people of promise, full stop. The fact that Jesus came and revealed God's self in a particular way does not invalidate the promise that God made to the Jewish people. Now that's a fairly radical statement in some quarters, but I really believe it. And it doesn't mean that Jesus doesn't matter, that the Messiah didn't come. It just means that that promise is actually a first promise. We have been grafted into the promise by virtue of what Jesus has done. So now in a sense, we are brothers and sisters with these forebears of ours. A Jewish friend might want to know about Jesus. They might want to know about this Messiah that you follow by all means, share that with them. But be careful going to your Jewish brothers and sisters as kind of triumphant. Um, You know, we got Jesus and you need to catch up. Because actually that's not supported in scripture. The people of Israel are people of promise. 
If you really believe that and start there, what it does is it reorders the conversation so that you're able to speak distinctively about who Jesus is and what Jesus did, but you're not, in a sense, trying to save someone who precedes you in promise. So let that sit just today. Think about that if you disagree or wanna talk about that at any point, I'm happy to do that. But I think what that might do is it might reorder the collaborative spirit with which we come alongside um, our brothers and sisters of faith. So I offer that just as a kind of a provocative thought. Okay, thank you for sharing that, both about what you've learned and why Hebrew scripture matters. When I was in seminary, I studied, he- I, we had a choice to study Hebrew or Greek. I chose Hebrew. And I would tell you that my faith was changed by that study. I have forgotten most of my Hebrew, but I haven't forgotten the professors and the underlining things as we went through Hebrew scripture, um, the things that I was able to pull away. And also what you miss when you read it in English and not in Hebrew is the poetic uh, humor, It is funny the way they play off words in the Hebrew. You just don't get that in English. Um, So if ever you're really brave and wanna try something, I suggest you try learning biblical Hebrew and it will make studies like this even more interesting. Okay, let's turn now to Genesis 26. And the pericope, you might have heard that word before. It's just a Greek word for passage, an area of study. The pericope we're looking at is chapter 26, six to 33. And as you heard me say, there is not a lot about Isaac. And I'm, I'm curious about that. Um, one of the theories is that they, they just didn't have access to the narratives. That somehow there were many narratives of Abraham to pull from, there were narratives of Jacob, but that the narratives around Isaac had gotten lost or displaced or somehow weren't in the, the medium. That, that's one possibility. The other possibility is truly the critical move is from Abraham to Jacob, to Israel, and that Isaac serves as a fulcrum for that. Because even if you look at the passage today, when God blesses Isaac, it's conditioned on Abraham's faithfulness. You know, I will bless you, I will make make your descendants numerous because of the faithfulness of Abraham. So it almost feels like Isaac is derivative of some of Abraham's faithfulness. So I just, that, that's worth noting. I also wonder if Isaac was a disappointment in some ways to the redactors, um, to the people of Israel, because he is often posited as one who is tricked, as one who is foolish. Um, he has some moments of faithfulness, but there are ways in which he is not the poster child for hero. And it makes you wonder, was he de-emphasized for some reason that maybe isn't completely clear to us. But just so you know, and if you've got your Bible, um, the places where we do hear about Isaac is chapter 21, one through seven, the birth of Isaac, you should know my son, we named him Isaac. And I texted him, he's in college now, and I sent him a little photograph of the passage we're looking at, and I said, I'm gonna be teaching on Isaac tomorrow and I'll be thinking of you. And uh, he loved that, he goes, way to go. And then he read it, And he said, Isaac was rich, way to go. (laughs) So uh, 18-year-olds have a particular focus, and we will talk about that. Um, We also hear about the testing of Abraham, which involves Isaac, right, as a child. Um, Psychologically, I'm always interested on how that test of Abraham and the near sacrifice of Isaac impacted his psychology. I won't go there, but man, that must have been traumatic um, to have your dad tying you down to the altar. 
Then in chapter 24, one through 67, we have the wooing of Rebecca, and it's great because the whole chapter is really about Rebecca and this servant of Abraham um, and finding a wife for Isaac. And even when they talk about Isaac, they kind of just talk about him mourning the loss of his mother and waiting in his tent for his new wife to come. So he's pretty passive as a character waiting for this um, woman from his homeland to come and meet him. And actually, it's a beautiful story about Rebecca um, and the servant, you remember this? right? I think you studied about this. And it's beautiful how Rebecca responds and is willing to go to a strange place with this, um, with this man. And granted, there were lots of gifts involved in camels and gold um, that may have had something to do with the families um, and the way of linking these families. These things are often a political reality back in that time, not just a, certainly not romantic initially, but became that. And what we learn is that Isaac and Rebecca loved each other. We know that they were a good match. And then in the chapter just before this, Jacob tricks Esau out of his birthright, right? I mean, Esau is starving nearly, and Jacob makes a delicious stew. He's quiet and stays in the tents. He's a favorite of his mother. Um, And Esau comes in from hunting and whatever it is he's doing, he's starving. Um, And Jacob tricks him and says, well, I will give you this stew, but you must sell your birthright, which Esau foolishly does. And it's the first time that Jacob tricks um, Esau. So, and and even in that case, you see um, Isaac as a little bit of one uh, being tricked, right? It's not necessarily leading in strength. So those are some stories that you've heard leading up to this point. Now we're at 26. And what I would suggest to you, if you read this chapter, would, this is not to see if you've done your homework. Would you just raise your hand if you've read this chapter so I know kind of how many have seen it? Okay, a goodly number, that's fine. If you haven't yet, go back and read it because what you'll find is The choices of Isaac very much parallel Abraham. The promise to Isaac resembles very similarly what God said to Abraham. The mistakes Isaac makes parallel uh, Abraham's mistakes. Um, So they're, they're really trying to say in this chapter, the story continues and we're along a path here where um, Isaac's behavior and Abraham's behavior is very similar. So, Let's look at the faithfulness that Isaac exhibits in this chapter or even before. He prays for children, and I would suggest to you that lets you know that Isaac is aware of God, that Isaac has a relationship with God, and we see that established from the very beginning, but at this point of sorrow, at this point of barrenness for his wife, he turns to God for help, um, and as the story tells it, the children come quickly on the heels of that. So you have one who calls out to God. And I want you to be taking notes, too, in your own life. What, What would a lively faith look like? And here is one where Isaac is not afraid to call out to God to ask for what he needs, and in this case, children. He receives God's promise twice, at the beginning of this pericope and about three quarters of the way through. Um, So we know that in a sense, God is shining on Isaac, that God has intentions for Israel. Um, So it's interesting because on the one level, and we're gonna talk about this later in one of our questions, is abundance and prosperity a sign of God's blessing or not? And why is it that God seems to bless even when behavior doesn't warrant it? So we're gonna get into a little bit of grace and works conversation at the end. But so um, Isaac receives God's promise and not only receives it, but believes it and builds altars, which lets you know that he receives the blessing and acknowledges it. Again, that relationship is evident. He obeys God. 
because God tells Isaac, do not settle in this, uh, do not go back to Egypt, do not return, but settle in this land among strangers, and Isaac obeyed him. And um, Abraham actually was not faithful in that and had to come back again, but Isaac was faithful the first time and being told, don't go back to Egypt, stay where you are, and he did so. He also cooperates with the outsiders, with the Philistines. And I suggest to you, if there's one thing that Isaac offers us, it's how to work collaboratively with our enemies to accomplish peace. Because it's clear that he has a very positive relationship with the king of Abimelech, um, and that he, there is a model there for, rather than seeing just someone as enemy to tear down, that there's ways to cooperatively um, accomplish something. And I think Isaac offers that uniquely in this passage. Um, Isaac does prosper. He has many camels, much gold, uh, land. It's clear that he is flourishing um, from an abundance point of view. He digs wells, and I think that can be seen just as practical. They're in the wilderness, and water means everything. It's it, the politics around water. So he finds water, so that's politically important. But also, I think it's a symbol for fruitfulness, for um, goodness springing from God. Uh, he digs these wells, he opens up these wells and lets the waters flow, some on behalf of the Philistines and some on behalf of his people. Um, so I want you to keep that image of Isaac as one who unstopped the wells and actually dug new wells, creating abundance and, and um, flow. Receives God's promise again, as I say, um, builds an altar and he does live in peace with the potential enemies around him. But then look at the foolishness. And I, will, you, I think you have a commentator that you read as you go along, and he this time, Chris sent it to me, really focuses in on um, trying to pass your wife off as your sister, and it, it's strange. I don't know why they keep doing this. You think they would have learned the first time, but once again, uh, Isaac is in the land. He's afraid that if he says that Rebecca's his wife, that they will kill him and take his wife. So fear for his own skin, once again, he passes her off as his sister. And in this story, it actually ends fine because the king is a good Gentile. Um, the king looks out and sees Isaac and Rebekah frolicking. Uh, the implication is some kind of sexual interaction and realizes it's his wife and then confronts Isaac and says, why did you hide this from me? Do you realize, now listen to this, the godly Gentile, do you realize that you could have brought sin upon our land if someone had lain with your wife? We would have been found guilty. So this is the redactor saying, faithfulness is not only in the house of Israel, faithfulness can also be in the outsider, in the Gentile. And here was this king who was distressed that Isaac had put him and his people in a position to possibly bring guilt upon them. Um, he confronts Isaac. Isaac just right away says, yes, I did that, I'm sorry. And then the king says, you need to leave um, and I'm gonna protect you, but you need to go out of this land. Um, so he does a dual thing there. He protects him, but also sends him out and Isaac goes. And that's when he begins digging the wells. That's when he becomes prosperous. Um, and as the chapter continues on, the king actually comes back to him, sees his power, sees his abundance, and says, I wanna make a covenant with you. I wanna make a deal with you. I see that God has blessed you. Again, you have the Gentile telling the patriarch of Israel that God has blessed him, confirming that, and then says, I wanna be an ally with you. I don't wanna be in um, opposition to you. And so they cut a deal there, and they're able to live in peace together. 
So out of that foolishness, I would suggest a good thing happen, and God keeps doing that. I want you to think about this. What appears like a wrong choice, a bad choice, a foolish choice, God seems to redeem it, redeem it, redeem it. And I have to think in my own life, and I hope you will as well, just take a moment now to think of the times when in a sense you took a path that was not wise, that was not healthy, that was not in yours or your family's best interest, and then look and see how God brought good out of that moment. And I do think that's a story, an uh, enduring story of Genesis, is that God will take the stuff of our lives, God will take the missteps and redeem them and make them holy, right? It doesn't excuse bad behavior, but it says God uses everything. You know, even those places in our life where we're not proud, um, God will use that to God's goodness. And then we see next chapter, and I'm not gonna give it away because Chris has saved this for himself next week, Jacob. <laughs> I mean, this story is so important. You have to come next week and you have to bring your friends um, because this is where Jacob tricks Isaac again in a very substantial way and his brother. Um, and so come and, and see that. Any questions so far? I, I just wanted to give you kind of an overview of chapter 26. Anything that you wanna comment on or mention or something that troubles you or you wanna underline? <laughs> so let me repeat for those who may not have heard, Rebecca is not a symbol of Good living. She is. See, she speaks again to Rebecca and then tries to redeem her immediately. Rebecca is a trickster. The character of Rebecca is a trickster, but I would suggest to you if you look carefully at the text, God directs the tricking. There's ways in which Rebecca is not just acting out of her own immaturity or her own selfishness. There almost is a way in which God is setting her up to the task. This is one of the things that's very troubling about Hebrew scripture, and I want you to be troubled by it. I don't want you to resolve it. It does seem sometimes that God is coming along in concert and almost leading people into behavior that we would consider wrong toward a good purpose. Tricking her husband. Ah, just makes her smart. <laughs> what else about, let's talk about Rebecca a little bit. Um, what kind of a character is she to you? What does she represent to you? What, what do you admire? What bothers you about Rebecca? She's what? Conniving. She's conniving. Pushy. She's pushy. <laughs> I think she loves Jacob. Now that's a problem because it's very clear she has favorites, but she does love Jacob. What else? What does she mean to you, or what do you think she represents to the narrative, to the larger narrative? A woman's influence. I will say in Genesis, for all the talk about patriarchy and men, it is the women who have power, and it is the women who move the plot along. I said that last time. Does that sound like Dallas? <laughs> I don't know. I mean, women make things happen. What else? What do you think about Rebecca? Does she, does she, does she trouble you? Does she give you hope? What does she mean to you? I think with all of these characters, they are more complex sometimes than they're portrayed as well. You have to understand these stories are in the hands of redactors, which are editors. They have a particular point they're trying to make. You cannot assume that they are revealing everything about these people that we need to know. There are gaps. 
Um, and so if Rebecca were to walk into the room, I actually love this idea of a one woman show where she tries to let us know who she is, that she, we get a fuller picture of who Rebecca is, because I think every person is much more complex than sometimes they're portrayed. But in this perp, in this case, she's definitely portrayed as the trickster one who's moving God's plot along. Anything else you want to say about Rebecca or comments? Okay. So let's, if you have your Bible with you, just turn to uh, Genesis 26, 23 to 25. Not gonna spend a lot of time on this, but I want you to hear this language again that would sound familiar as language to Abraham, and now it's coming to Isaac as well. Genesis 26, verses 23 through 25. So what's happened is he's just unplugged several wells and every time he unplugs a well, the local people come and want to take it. And so he gives great names to the well, contention, you know, uh, what, are, what are the different words he uses? Uh, he names the wells basically like fighting or contention or quarrel, right? Um, I love naming in the Bible because it, it gives you some story of how things got named. So he unstops a couple of them and then there's one he actually digs excuse me, water comes out and he actually gets to keep it. And that one he calls roominess um, because he feels like, ah, oh, at last, I have some room that I can expand into. So that's just happened. And now we have these verses 23 through 25. From there, Isaac went up to Beersheba and that very night the Lord appeared to him and said, I am the God of your father Abraham. Do not be afraid for I am with you and will bless you and make your offspring numerous for my servant Abraham's sake. So he built an altar there, called on the name of the Lord, and pitched his tent there. And there Isaac's servants dug a well. So there we have a well again. What are the words, if you could just um, pull out words that ping you in that reading, just call them out. Servant? Servant? Afraid. Alter. Alter. Bless. I'm your God. I am your God. Actually, yeah, I am the God of your father Abraham. Any other words that resonate that you hear? Numerous offspring. Couldn't hear you. I can't hear. The Lord appeared, okay. So you have the Lord appearing at the first of the chapter and now at this point really bracketing it, um, making God's promise to Isaac. And like I said, the king then comes later and says it is clear that the Lord has blessed you. So not only is it promise, it's blessing. And I wanna make that distinction. There is a difference between making a promise and then having the blessing realized. Um, so the promise comes toward the beginning of this chapter, but the blessing is realized um, in the abundance that he experiences um, and in the fruitfulness of his house. I also do like this image of building an altar. And I think I may have talked about this with you last time I was here, but again, I would ask you, if you could think about a moment in your life when God drew near, and remember, that's not only emotional. For some people, it's an emotional experience. There might be tears, um, joy, 
But for some people, it's also through the mind, through thinking, through an aha moment. So I wanna be clear, when I talk about relationship with God, I'm not only talking about emotional, which is valid, but I'm also talking about intellectual. Can you think of a time in your life when God came near and you figuratively should have, could have, would have built an altar to recognize that place in that moment? Just think for a moment. A time in your life when God drew near and you might have built an altar to mark that time and place. I will share my, uh, one that came to me, and you can think about it if you want to share something. Uh, some of you know that I grew up in Mandeville, Louisiana for the first 12 years of my life, very small town, very simple beginning. And then my dad took a job overseas. He went to Saudi Arabia and I went to boarding school in India from ninth to 12th grade. And at, I can tell you how the story ends, which was, was the best experience of my life. But I don't always talk about how the story began. And that was being left on a mountaintop in South India at age 13 and my father taking a flight away. That was one of the primal moments in my life of and it's not abandonment, but it was just tremendous loss. And I really felt alone in kind of the deepest way that I can remember. And in, tr in real terms, I had to place myself in God's hands because it was bigger than I could wrap my mind around. I mean, seriously, this little Southern boy suddenly in India, somewhat by himself, um, and believe me, my mom did not approve of the story. When she heard I was going to boarding school, I was her youngest. She didn't like that, um, but she knew it needed to happen because we couldn't go to school in Saudi Arabia because of their uh, religious laws there. But that was a time when I had to lean in to God's provision. And as I look back, I would build, and literally the space I have is there was a dispensary on campus. And when my dad said goodbye to me the night before, which was difficult, the arrangement was that he would leave for me. He had some keys that I needed. He was going to leave those under a bush by the dispensary. And then I would take those back to the hotel for him or whatever. And I prayed as I went there that the keys wouldn't be there because that would mean he hadn't left. And I went and there were the keys. And that was the concrete moment that he had departed and, and I literally could build an altar in that space, both as a place of loss, but also as a place of promise that I knew that now we were gonna have to grow up, that this was gonna be a new day. And sincerely, those were the best four years of my life when I think about the relationships I built. Um, but that's what I mean when I talk about where might you build an altar in your life. Um, it doesn't just have to be happy places, it could be places of devastation, where in a sense you trusted in God in a new way. Would anyone like to share briefly a snippet for you? Yeah. It's not mine. It's my husband's, and he can't hear. Would he give you permission to share it? Yes. Okay. He was in Vietnam, and when the Do me a favor. I actually want you to come stand. I know this is hard. I want everyone to be able to hear you, and I don't want to repeat the whole story. Just as loudly as you come stand right up front. Do not be afraid. I'm going to come stand next to you, so you don't feel alone. All right. Big voice. I know. This will teach you. Bob was in Vietnam. A lot of you all know Bob. But he was now that I've made her stand up and face everybody, nobody will answer. Would anyone else? What, does anyone else feel brave? The reason I'm doing this is because I think Bible hits the road when we stop and ask ourselves, what difference does this make? What difference does this make? If it's just an accumulation of knowledge, that's fine, but I really think the Bible is much more than that, and I think God is 
at something much larger. So if we can find those links between our experience and the biblical experience, it'll take. Anyone else want to share a time or a place when you would have, could have, should have built an altar? So building an altar, landing back home. And you know, look at your church. You have an altar here in this chapel. You have an altar in the main church. We have altars everywhere. And actually, I think for many of you, St. Michael represents that place of where I can bring my burdens, where I can bring my uncertainties and lay them on the table. Like literally lay them on the table for God to make something out of it. And all I'm suggesting to you, while we have physical altars here that are very important, they're not confined to the church. They're not confined to this building. There's much in your own home and your own schools and your children's homes. You know, I just want you to have that image of where might an altar spring up, either in, from the past or not yet to come. Um, and be on the lookout for altar moments. Um, and give thanks for the altars that we have here that really just serve as reminders that God has come near, that God has made promises to God's people. That's what altars mean, um, that God will dwell with us in that place. So let me just see how we're doing on time. Okay, great, we're doing fine. I want now just to move to a couple of questions that come out of this study for me. And actually, I don't have answers to all of these. They're real questions. And I want you to think as I ask these, where is the blessing in the scripture in terms of a story and what it shares, and where does it actually create a problem? One of the things about scripture is it creates as many problems as it solves. And I think there are Christians out there who are coming to church looking for answers to everything. Basically, there's too much ambivalence in the world, there's too much uncertainty, and so church becomes a place where I can get that all sewn up and made neat. There is some aspect where church can do that, but I suggest to you that a life of faith actually keeps breaking us open and keeps making us ask new questions and see God in new ways. So I want you to come to church for comfort, but I also want you to come to be changed. Because, I mean, there's actually a prayer in the prayer book, one of our Eucharistic prayers, not for solace only, but also then to be able to go out and be the people of God in the world. So I offer these questions to you, um, and I would truly invite your response to them, even if you want to respond with a question. You may not have an answer. So if you hear this and want to either emphasize something or ask a question back, please do. Do God's promises depend on our obedience? Do God's promises depend on our obedience? Feel free to just shout out if you know. Maybe. We only have one more response. Yes. There we go. No. Okay, let's move beyond one word answers. For the person who said maybe, could you say a little more about that? I don't know who you are. So he's saying, sometimes in my life it does depend on obedience, sometimes it doesn't. Sometimes I actually don't have to do anything, and it seems that God is actively working. Is that? Okay. Yes, in the back. Okay, so thank you. This is such a great avenue in. What she said is that if you look at the root word, uh, the Latin word for obedience, it actually means to hear, to listen. It doesn't actually even talk about action or response. It just talks about to hear. I think Rebecca listened. Her actions are troubling, 
but there was a sense that she was listening to God. I think Isaac was listening. There was a call and response. God made a promise, Isaac built an altar. So I like this idea that obedience is not about submission, obedience is about listening with the ears of the heart. And I suggest to you that there are a variety of faithfulnesses that can emerge from that listening. There's not just a single faithfulness, but if you think of your life and the complexity of it, and if you're listening with the ears of your heart faithfully, there are a variety of paths that you can follow that are obedient because it's not necessarily just one. There's a variety of expressions of faithfulness. So I really like, you know, that word obedience is a problem because that can be very misused. Um, You can have power over um, all kind of dynamics um, in the church. You know, you need to obey the words of the preacher or the priest or whatever it is and some of the really dark things that have happened in places where there's a lot of submission. So that's what we're talking about. We're talking with obedience. We're talking about listening with the ears of our heart and then responding faithfully to what we have heard. Anyone else want to say anything about whether God's promises depend? And maybe another way to say it is, does, do God's promises depend on our response? I don't think it's a reward system. Okay. The danger with looking at Hebrew scripture is it can look transactional, that it's a reward system. God says this, I do this, I pull the slot down, and the coins come out. That is not how it goes. I will say to you, I do think our actions matter a lot. I'm not gonna say how. I think they really matter. And I think actually God's promises will endure. And so if we are unwilling to receive those promises, it's like water, it will keep flowing to where it finds fertile ground and it will bear fruit. And I don't, so I don't wanna scare you by that, but I kind of think if your ground is hard and dry and cracked and you are unwilling to let that water soften you and make you whole, I think the water will flow to where it finds that kind of land. So there is a sense that our actions matter, but it's not like a, um, a reward system. It's not transactional. What do you think about that? Does, that? does that ring true? Or would you test that a little bit? Okay, so she's mentioning, you know, there's the laws in Hebrew scripture, the, the covenant from Sinai, and I will tell you, just quick aside, this is really fun. In verse five of chapter 26, there's a reference to the law and the statutes. That wouldn't have been around at that time. That came later. So that's a redactor saying, and actually God has been making promises since the beginning of creation, so it's not theologically wrong to say that God has a plan for us, but to refer to it as the law and the statutes, that came later, so you have that kind of coming back in. And they do think Genesis was probably finalized during the exile. After the people of Israel had had an experience, they would have gone back, in a sense, to recapture the early history, and that's why you see these little um, flares sometimes of, oh wait, that sounds later. It's okay, that, that, that's part of the process. Um, where was I going with that, though? Oh, the statutes and the law. So come this Sunday, if you weren't planning to, I'm gonna be preaching, and it's all about Deuteronomy, and where, in a sense, God lays before Moses the law and disregard of the law, life and death, blessings and curses. There really is a moment where God lays it out to the people and says, you have a choice. How then will you live? And I'm gonna talk a little bit about the purpose of law, and, and as a little, 
lead on it. I actually think the law is intended to instruct our heart. It is not about just doing a list of things. And that's what we as humans keep doing. We keep making law a list of things we're supposed to do and our hearts get hard. The law is supposed to inform and instruct our hearts, which also means our soul, our will. When we say hearts, we're not just talking about love, Valentine's Day, we're talking about our will. Um, And so I think law is meant to be a teacher to our heart not just a list of things to check off, um, but you might want to come on Sunday and, and hear more about that. Let's move on. Um, our well, this is important because like my son, when I sent him the passage, he loved the fact that Isaac got very wealthy. Our wealth and abundance always a sign of God's blessing. It sounds like it in Hebrew scripture a lot of times. He increased, he prospered, whatever, the Lord was with him. Is it possible that in that day, that question would have been answered differently than today? What might, be the dif- what might be the difference from the time of the patriarchs and now in terms of how we understand wealth and prosperity? <laughs> could we, could we uh, Kristen, if you would just put that in the notes, I don't think God loves Michael Bloomberg better than God loves me. I was going to say, okay, (laughs) and somehow this became a campaign event. I do not know how that happened. (laughs) Well, but I think actually, though, we have to be careful because I think we do do that as human beings. I think we say wealth, abundance, prosperity, good, poverty, bad, and I think when we start equating to that to God's love and blessing, I think that gets really problematic. I was once part of a group uh, when I was in DC and I was working with the homeless, there was a group called the Ministry of Money. And it was a group of people who were insanely wealthy and they desperately needed to come together to talk about their wealth and the way that it was a chain around their neck and a way in which it actually made it hard to live faithfully just because of the demands on them, right? You know this, all the constant requests for grants, money, whatever. So there's that piece of it, but also just the way that the wealth itself could cloud, could kind of get in the way of clear vision. So they created a ministry called the Ministry of Money where they purposely came together to talk about those struggles and to create resources for people of wealth to, to, live, to be, know how to live faithfully with what has been given to you. So that just tells me that um, it's a mixed bag. That abundance, that prosperity comes with blessings and curses. And uh, like we're gonna talk about on Sunday, what will you do with that gift? What will you do with that abundance? To whom much is given, much is required. Okay, anyone else wanna talk about that? I guess also I would say I have known incredibly poor people who are such a light to me about who God is, full stop. I mean, they have changed me, they have enlightened me, um, and so I can't possibly say that there's a correlation, you know, wealth, abundance is always a sign of God's blessing or not. I, I can't say that. And yet, sometimes in our scriptures, it almost sounds like that. Anything else? Okay, what, so what role does Isaac play in this great story of Genesis? After we've talked today and you've heard what I've said, what, what is his role? 
How does he function? I mean, guys, sometimes it's just a matter of saying he showed up, like he kept it moving. Like he wasn't necessarily the most impressive, but he showed up, he did what he needed to do and he passed it on. It's like the relay. So there's, yeah, kind of a fulcrum. Anything else you hear that's distinctively Isaac? I actually wonder the fact that he was easily tricked, if that actually speaks to an openness of heart. That a certain, I mean, it might have been a naivete, but it also just might have been one whose heart was open and susceptible to the wiles of those around him. I mean, I wonder if we met Isaac, if we would actually find him kind of open-hearted, um, responsive to God, even though the story doesn't put a fine point under that. Last one, um, might Isaac's cooperative relationship with Abimelech be a model for peace? Um, think of the world we live in. Think of how we relate to one another as nation states. Is there anything in this story about Isaac and Abimelech that might be useful for us to pay attention to, to note? What did you see in that relationship between Isaac and Abimelech that might be worth holding on to? Okay, so he actually did something useful to, for the survival of the people. He built wells. Courtesy. Say a little more about courtesy. Where do you see courtesy in the story? They were each other. And, and that to me is a form of courtesy. So I really like this point. They heard each other. There were a couple of options here where it could have gone south quickly. When that king saw that Isaac had deceived him, he could have responded Powerfully. I mean, he could have destroyed him. He chose not to. When he asked Isaac to leave the land, Isaac did. What else? And then also in that latter part where he comes and makes a deal with Isaac to kind of cooperate and share the land together. Uh, I'm intrigued by that. They were willing to hear each other and to hear what was important to the other. Anything else in that relationship between Isaac and Abimelech that might be worth holding on to? Okay, so Isaac made some assumptions that he would be killed if he told people that Rebecca was his wife. That was based out of fear. And I do think actually that's one of the things the writers are trying to tell us. Look at the decisions that are made out of fear. They're usually not the right decisions. They're usually not, fear is not usually the best source of action. There are times to be afraid, there are true threats. Fear is part of being human. But when we make decisions out of fear, we often end up on a path that's not of God. Is that, would you agree? Okay. Anything else about Isaac's relationship with those around him? Well, I am very jealous of you next week. You're going to have a fabulous story. Um, I might sneak in the back and listen. Do you have any other questions for me today before we say our final prayer and kind of wrap things up? Anything that you'd like to say or point out today? Thank, thank you for your willingness to be involved. As I said before, I really think if we open our hearts to this material, and I said, you've heard me say this, we interpret scripture and scripture interprets us if we'll let it, if we'll have ears to hear, if we'll receive the implanted word, if we'll let that water kind of run through us it will change us, it will transform us. 
Um, so you have a choice about whether you're able or willing to let that word kind of move in you and change you. Because I think that's the goal of faith, is not to leave us, God loves us, accepts us where we are, but doesn't leave us where we are. God is always moving us in that great plot. Um, and the question is, how will that happen? And also keep in mind, there are a variety of faithfulnesses. Don't get hung up on doing the right thing. Just do a right thing based on obedience, based on hearing, and then respond out of that place of your heart. Um, and I think, I think that will lead us all on good, good paths. The Lord be with you. Let us pray. Holy God, we take a moment of silence in this day to acknowledge your presence in all of our lives. You are here with us today as we talk about Holy Scripture and your servant Isaac and Rebecca, Jacob and Esau, Abimelech, we thank you for these characters who teach us something about living. We know you are also with our family and friends who are in any trouble or need. We pray that your life-giving water may flow into them and bring healing and in us. We do pray for this world in which we live. I pray that we may hear your instruction and not just the loudest voice on the TV or the radio. I pray that you will inform our hearts, that you will lead us into right action. And we know that even now you are accomplishing in our world more than we can ask or imagine, and so we stay attentive to the revealing of your purpose. In Christ's name we pray, amen. amen. Thank you for coming.